Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 24. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Lamelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. You know, if you look at newspapers, especially during this time of year, you see a lot of media outlets kind of doing these review of uh, 2017. And I don't know about you, but 2017 seemed like a pretty eventful year, right? Uh, I think a lot happened. You know, you had, it started with this kind of crazy election that I think is probably one of the more memorable elections that we've had. It's been filled with all kind of racial division and even in some cases racial violence. There were all these massive hurricanes. There was a massive uh, shooting in Las Vegas. More recently, you have all these revelations of sexual misconduct. Uh, Globally, you have this escalation that seems to be taking place with North Korea. And uh, it just seems like a very full year of things that are happening, not only here, but in the world. And I was thinking about this. It's pretty crazy, you know, even here in New York. Do you remember when... uh, 
you know, I think we had at least two terrorist attacks where uh, this one guy drove a van and like ran over people downtown. And then even more recently, we had uh, a guy detonate this pipe bomb near Port Authority. And for some reason, uh, it doesn't feel like those stories got as much attention or it's not as memorable as some of the other things that happened. And that just kind of tells you what kind of a crazy year it's been, that even a major thing like that, something as memorable like that, uh, is somewhat uh, not as memorable, maybe, as some of the other things that are taking place in 2017. And uh, you kind of add the layer to what's going on in terms of events in the world to like what might be going on in our own individual personal lives. There might be a lot going on in our lives as well. Maybe some of us have lost loved ones or loved ones have gotten sick or maybe some of us have lost a job or maybe uh, even as simple as some of us have lost friends because they simply just moved away this year, which is uh, kind of uh, uh, the nature of uh, the city. And I think in the midst of these things, we ask this question, where is God and what is he doing? Right? Where is God and what is he doing in the midst of what appears, what can appear to be chaos and I think the book of Ruth is a, is a nice book and it's a nice story because it gives us an answer to, to these very important perennial questions. And the answer is this. God is always there. God is always present, even when he seems hidden. God is always at work directing things, orchestrating things, and bringing to fruition his divine purposes and his divine plans. And we see it even in this story, even in this somewhat insignificant family in this insignificant little town of Bethlehem. What is Bethlehem? Who are these people? And yet God is active in this family as well. Now, for the benefit of those who haven't been here uh, during the series, uh, whether you're from City Grace or maybe this is your first time visiting, uh, I, I do want to briefly just summarize the story just so you can follow what's going on in this last scene. And uh, basically, the story begins with this married couple uh, named Naomi and Elimelech. And they move to Moab uh, away from their home in Bethlehem because there's a famine. And what ends up happening in Moab is, uh, you know, they have two sons. Their two sons marry foreign Moabite women. And then tragedy strikes Naomi. Her husband dies. And after about 10 years, I guess, of marriage of her two sons to these foreign Moabite women, her two sons also die. And Naomi is a woman who is... Uh, basically left alone because her, her children didn't produce any other children, so she he has no grandchildren. And the only person that she has left after one of her daughter-in-law's daughters-in-law um, you know, decide to stay home with her family, which uh, I think is somewhat understandable, uh, is this woman named Ruth, one of her daughters-in-law. And she makes a vow. She says to Naomi, I'm going to commit myself to you and not only that, but I'm going to worship your God, the God of Israel, which is essentially kind of like her conversion experience. What then happens is Naomi and Ruth, they go from Moab and they go back to Naomi's home in Bethlehem. Ruth goes out to glean in the fields, which is basically to pick up some of the ears of grain that the harvesters dropped. And she happens to find herself in a field of a guy named Boaz. And Boaz is uh, a good man, he's a righteous man, and he extends a lot of kindness and generosity to both Ruth and Naomi, but he also happens to be a kinsman redeemer. In other words, he happens to be the very guy who, can, who would be charged with taking care of this family. He would be the very guy who would supposed to be, who's supposed to take the responsibility of redeeming this family, and Ruth happens to glean in his field. 
one of the things kinsmen redeemer would do is they would marry widows of relatives. And they would do that in order to care for that widow and in order to care for their descendants. And in a sense, this is kind of literally like a match made from heaven. Ruth, foreign Moabite, Boaz, kinsman redeemer, they meet. Now, if you don't believe in God, the only way you can conclude uh, this little story is basically say, wow, these are an amazing set of coincidences. Uh, It's just amazing how these two people happen to meet. Ruth happens to go to a field of a man who happens to be the kinsman redeemer, who also happens to be a good, generous, and righteous guy, who also happens to be the key to making Naomi's family whole again. But that's one of the lessons that this book is trying to teach here is that these are not simply coincidences. These are not simply lucky breaks. But this is a result of a God who is actively, providentially at work in orchestrating these things to bring Naomi from a place of emptiness to a place of being filled. If, uh, if you're familiar with uh, certain passages in the New Testament, there is a verse in Romans 8.28, and it says this, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And I've always thought the book of Ruth is a great accompanying story to that verse, uh, to what Paul says in that verse, because God is working all things together for good. Is he doing that even when things don't look good? Yeah. Is he doing that even when things don't feel good? Yeah. Was God doing that even when Naomi's husband died and her two sons died and she was left empty? The book of the story, the book of Ruth is trying to say yes. Even there, God is working all things together for good. And you know, these are the kind of questions that I think come up in the midst of suffering and hardship. Things like, is God really in control of all things? This terrible thing that I'm going through, the terrible things that are going on in our world, is God really in control? Interestingly enough, uh, a lot of the Old Testament books that emphasize the fact that God is sovereign, that God is in control, are the books where there's a lot of hardship and suffering. So, for example, you read the book of Job. Job is a man who suffered a great deal. And in that book, one of the themes that emerges is that, yeah, even in Job's suffering, God is ultimately in control. Now, if you are the type of person that takes a moment to reflect on this past year, two questions to, to reflect upon. Do you believe that God is in control of all things? And perhaps an even more important question, do you believe that God is working all things together for good? For good. Because how you answer those two questions, I think, will really shape your perspective in terms of how you understand not only the events in your life, but how you understand who God is. Now, what really helps us, I think, answer this latter question, uh, is God working all things together for good, is to understand something else about God. And that is this. God loves his people. Otherwise, the fact that God is in control, you know what it feels like? It kind of feels like sitting on this cold, hard metal chair rather than lying by a fluffy pillow around a fire, right? That's a difference. Uh, It might support us, but, you know, we won't really be warmed by that truth that God is in control of all things. Uh, That is the other major theme that we find in the story of Ruth. That not only is God in control, but God is a God of love. 
and he loves his people. There's great acts of love here that warm the soul. You know, it's kind of like watching those feel-good movies, uh, those maybe romantic comedies or things where characters do amazing acts of love and sacrifice for another person. Ruth demonstrates this kind of love to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Boaz demonstrates this kind of love to both Ruth and Naomi. And their acts of love is ultimately pointing to God, who demonstrates uh, the greatest act of love for us. And so here now we pick up on uh, our passage today, chapter 4, and we're going to pick up on this theme of love, especially as we focus on the final scene of this story. And uh, the previous chapter, it kind of ended on this cliffhanger where Boaz says, you know, Ruth, I will marry you. I will redeem you. But there's one minor obstacle. There is somebody else who actually has first rights. There's somebody else who is next in line in terms of being able to marry you and to redeem you. So what I have to do is I have to talk to that guy and make sure that he doesn't want to marry you or redeem you. And after uh, that is all settled, then I'll be free to marry you and to redeem you. And this is where chapter 4 basically picks up. It starts with Boaz, and he meets this redeemer. And the setting for this scene, uh, you know, it's a little bit more formal than you might think because it's not as though Boaz is saying, hey, dude, you want to meet up for some coffee in this coffee shop? But they're actually meeting at the gate, and the gate is a place where a lot of judicial and administrative business would be done. So it's, it's less like a coffee shop, more like a courtroom scene. And uh, Boaz goes up there, and look, another pleasant coincidence. Wink, wink, right? The Redeemer, who, by the way, is nameless in this story, is the very man that Boaz must talk to, and he happens to come by showing us again this hidden hand of God that is orchestrating all things. When he sees this Redeemer, Boaz gets 10 elders, they gather together, and it's time to take care of some formal business. He tells the unnamed Redeemer about Naomi and about the land and about Elimelech, how he died and how this land needs to be sold. And at this point, Boaz only mentions the land. He doesn't mention anything about Ruth. And this redeemer says, oh, okay, I will redeem it, right? I will buy this land. And it sounds like a pretty good investment to him. He gets to buy the land, and there's probably a good chance that he's going to benefit and to profit from this land. But then Boaz throws a wrench into that plan, and he also then tells him about Ruth. And he says, you know, not only, you know, with this land also comes this Moabite woman named Ruth, and you must redeem her as well. And you see, the addition of Ruth uh, actually messes things up a little bit, and it makes this proposal significantly less attractive to this unnamed redeemer. And we can confirm that because he changes his mind at the end, and he says, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. You see, buying a land is a pretty good investment, and it'll dish out some good return on that investment. But when you add Ruth to the equation, things change. Acquiring the land plus Ruth, actually ends up becoming a loss. It becomes more costly to this redeemer. Uh, anybody who is financially savvy, and if you work in finances, right, you make an investment. A good investment is one in which you gain more profit and you minimize your losses. This is, is not a good investment. Uh, a financial advisor would say, don't, don't invest in this, right? You're going to end up paying more. And I think, you know, for the common person, for the average person, we look at this situation and we might say, yeah, I wouldn't do that too. I wouldn't put that investment in. He is simply doing what other people would do. And in a way, I think he, he's a good comparison to Orpah. Orpah, who is Orpah? She was the other daughter-in-law. 
And uh, basically, you know, she didn't do anything wrong or evil per se. But when Naomi said, stay home, stay in Moab, don't come with me, right? Stay with your family. Uh, there's security here. There's comfort here. Orpah said, okay, I'll do it, right? And again, things that many of us would do as well. But you see, I think both Orpah and this unnamed redeemer, they kind of serve as foils. A foil is basically somebody, a character who highlights the, the characteristics of another character. So Orpah, I think, highlights the love and devotion of Ruth. And this unnamed redeemer highlights the love of Boaz, the sacrificial love of Boaz. Now, I want to interrupt this story for a bit. And I just make one observation. Uh, we, we tend to be a people who want to look for meaning in our lives and look for significance in our lives. And I think one of the striking things about this story is that the ones who are the most significant here are the ones who are able to show the greatest love when the ordinary opportunity comes around in order to show that kind of love. And sometimes I get the feeling that we, we wait for something extraordinary to happen in our lives in order to make uh, an impact or in order to change the world. But perhaps we should ask ourselves whether we're missing these ordinary opportunities to show love to someone as they come into our lives. Because in a sense, I think we'll be faced with these very similar uh, situations or decisions of Orpah and and this Redeemer, though, uh, of course, to different degrees. And the question will be, do I choose my own comfort and do I choose my own security or do I exercise some courage and some sacrifice and generosity in order to love another person. And I suspect that is going to be difficult for many of us, but consider that that might be one of the most significant things we can do in our lives. Now, as we return to the story, you know, this is how it concludes. The unnamed redeemer says he will not redeem Ruth, and instead he's going to give his rights of redeemer to Boaz, And after some formalities take place, like taking off your sandal, which is kind of strange, but after some formalities take place, Boaz becomes the redeemer. He takes Ruth as his wife. She conceives, and they give birth to a son named Obed. Now, there's a little bit of mystery in terms of how, uh, or there's very little mystery, I should say, in terms of how we should interpret all of these events. You know, the narrator makes it very clear because the first thing he says is this, you know, the Lord gave Ruth conception. God made it happen. For some, whatever reason, 10 years of being married uh, to Naomi's two sons, they couldn't give birth to any children. But here with Boaz, the Lord gave them this son. Second, in verse 14, uh, you have the voice of some anonymous woman, and they say this, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And these women say, Naomi, the Lord is the one who blessed you. Not just these random set of circumstances and coincidence. The Lord is the one who did it for you. You see, even though Naomi started from a place of suffering, hardship, she lost everything. She finds herself in a place of being filled because the Lord did it. He orchestrated it. He made it happen. Now, when I first read this, I thought the Redeemer that they're referring to is Boaz, but then you read it a little bit more carefully, and uh, they're actually referring to Naomi's grandson, Obed. 
And you see the gift of his life would restore Naomi's life and nourish her in her old age. And for Naomi, Obed represents all good things. It is her hope. It is her security. It is her purpose. And it is her meaning in life. And the Lord brought Naomi out of the depths of famine and despair now to a place of joy and fullness. How? Think about this. How did God do it? Through the love of a poor, foreign, Moabite, insignificant woman named Ruth. And that's why the women say to her, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Think about that. The love that came from Ruth was so great that it was more valuable than seven sons. Now, in the ancient world, of course, sons were considered to be more valuable uh, than daughters. And they're saying that even seven sons, even things that uh, people long for in terms of lineage, the love of your daughter-in-law is far more valuable than even that. You see, to have that kind of love from even one person, I think it's better than anything else that our hearts could possibly treasure. You know, that kind of love... Have you experienced that kind of love from a person? This kind of devotion, this kind of sacrifice that Ruth showed from Naomi. Have you experienced it in your life? Well, perhaps from a human, perhaps not. But do you know that this love is actually available to you and me? How? available to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And you know, to have that love is more than seven sons, more than seven promotions, seven careers, seven apartments, seven jobs, seven million dollars, seven boyfriends, seven girlfriends, Whatever it is in your heart that you treasure and you turn for your hope and for your security and for your meaning, the love of Christ is better than seven of those things. You know, the average person probably wouldn't risk personal wealth in order to redeem another. Uh, I think, I think um, most people are probably generous insofar as it doesn't cost them anything. So we, we tend to be, I think, generous with our excess, but we won't be generous in our uh, poverty or to the point where it actually hurts us. Boaz is generous to the point where it actually is very costly for him, financially speaking. And of course, what does that point to? It points, it points to the costly sacrificial love of Christ. Jesus, he gives up his life so that we could have it. He gives up his glory so that we might have this wonderful inheritance that awaits us in heaven. He empties himself and becomes poor so that we might become filled and be rich in him. He offers his blood and spiritually bankrupts himself. Why? So that the debt of our sin might be paid in full and forgiven. You know, friends, uh, I don't know what kind of year you've had. You may not have had the greatest year. You might mark 2017 as even perhaps one of the worst years you've had because you've lost so much. But I tell you this, if you have the love of Christ, 
that is more valuable than gaining sevenfold of that which you may have lost this year. Consider that. You know, it took a while for Naomi to see the value of the love that Ruth showed to her. And it might take a while for us to really see the value of the life that Christ has shown to us. But I I hope and I pray that we, we have the equivalent of these women in the neighborhood who can remind us of this great and wonderful and beautiful, incredible reality. Because you know what happens? When we, when we start to lose the forest for the trees, especially when some of the trees are on fire, we need somebody to remind us, look, the forest is big, and there is a God who is gracious and full of love who is in charge of the entire forest. Now I want to end um, with a little bit of a challenge because not only do we want to reflect on this past year, but looking forward to 2018, reflecting on ways in which we can grow. Uh, I look out here, and I think there's probably a lot of nice people here, just genuinely nice people. But I think what we need, uh, more than just nice people, I think we need loving people. Uh, That means sacrificial people giving up our securities, our comforts, our time, our energy, our money for the sake of others. You know, in this past year, if it's uh, emphasized, I think, anything, it's that, you know, there's a lot of um, not good relationships in the world. Uh, There's a lot of division. There's a lot of tribalism. Uh, There's a lot of uh, judging other people, judging the other. There's not a lot of uh, embracing the other and absorbing the other. And even within our small communities, um, probably loving one another is one of the greatest challenges that we have. But you know, at least as Christians or as believers or as the church, we have a message and we have a person who has given us the resources to do that, who has poured out that kind of love in such a way that we have the empowerment to be able to love others in such a way. Because you see in the final analysis, a life of love is a life that is charged with meaning and significance. A life of love is one that is full. There's a theologian named B.B. Warfield, and he, you know, he has this wonderful paragraph in one of his like, more theological books, so um, you'll have to excuse the theological uh, density of it. But uh, I do want to read the paragraph because I think the last line is so beautiful. And uh, this is what he writes. He says, Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world, and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there we will be to comfort. Wherever men strive, there will we be to help. Wherever men fail, there will we be to uplift. Wherever men succeed, there will we be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means many-sidedness of spirit, multiform activity, multiplicity of sympathies. It means richness of development. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. 
This is one of the most beautiful paragraphs I've, I've read in a while. And I, I love that last line. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives. When we bind ourselves to others in love, when we take the chance and the courage to absorb other people's hopes and fears and despairs, we live a thousand lives. And what is more beautiful than that, than living a life such as that? You know, there's something incredibly difficult about that, I know. But the gospel says Jesus did it for us. And if you believe that, how do we not do that for others? You know, it's kind of like being invited to, uh, this is an illustration just because it's cold outside. Imagine you're outside for like hours and someone invites you, come on in. I have a fireplace here. Come on in and sit by the fireplace. And you go in, oh, I'm out of the cold. Uh, and I can get warm again. And then you hear somebody else knocking, hey, uh, stay out there. That's kind of what it is. But you see, Christ has invited us to sit by the warmth through his love, and that gives us every empowerment to do the same for others. Now, I'll also say this. I don't think you'll be able to absorb people in love unless you remember daily the love of Christ for you. Uh, that would actually be like inviting people to a fire when you're outside and you're, you yourself are not being warmed by the fire because you're nowhere near the fire. And so as you uh, reflect upon this past year, maybe ask yourself this. Uh, first, how many lives have you lived? Uh, how many people have you absorbed? How many hopes, fears, and despairs have you absorbed into your lives? And as we look upon the new year, perhaps we should strive to do that, to not just live our own lives, to live in our own tiny bubbles, to do what we want to do and fulfill our own desires but to begin to look outward to others and to absorb others. And friends, to do that, we really got to know how loved we are in Christ. And as we sang, simply look to the cross to be reminded of that. Let's pray together.